Take your Bibles and turn to Psalms chapter 1, the first, very first psalm. Psalm chapter 1, as we preach the revived walk moving forward. I actually started this series back in February. I had the first sermon, and then so many things came up that uh, I've not preached this series on a Sunday night since. And so I thought, well, am I going to go ahead and go through with it? Uh, I decided, yeah, because it's just going to be on the first psalm. So I should be out of that by next year sometime. But um, I want you to think, though, before we get started, on decisions that you've made for the Lord. Uh, maybe you made it in a revival meeting. Maybe this past revival meeting. Maybe there was something the Lord laid on your heart that He wanted you to do. Maybe there was something that um, well, He just wanted you to stop in your life. Maybe there was a certain call on your life. Something that you've been wrestling against. And, and you walked the aisle and, and you said, Lord, I will. Maybe it was in the revival meeting. Maybe it was in a church service one night or one day. Perhaps it was at home. And you see, it was a private time with the Lord. And He laid it on your heart. And you move forward with it. And you said, yes, Lord, I will. And since then, so many things have come up. And please understand that there are two things about any decision that you make about the, for the Lord. Number one, the devil will always try to take you away from it and put other things in your life to draw you away. Number two, when you make a sincere promise to God, when you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to do this, He will reward that act of faith with an adventure. You just look through the Bible there's Jacob going off to find a wife, and he had about a 20-year adventure, okay, before he comes back to the land. You look in the Bible when, when men said, okay, the Lord, I, I will do this. It seems like there was always that adventure, not just the devil challenging, but that call of faith to carry out and do and not quit. And so I believe that we have in this first psalm some thoughts, some words from God that are helping to direct us in that walk going forward. So in verse 1, I'm just going to read the first three verses then have a word of prayer. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth 
in the seat of the scornful. That sounds like enemies already. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. You might be seeing a key there to walking successfully for the Lord. In his law doth he meditate day and night. That is, in his word. And so when you think of thinking on the things of the Lord, he goes on in verse 3 and he says, And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. That's quite a promise. That's quite a promise. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. But there's conditions in that first verse before you read, whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll look into the message for tonight. Father, I pray as we now continue in this series of messages, Lord, it's given by you. Lord, again, I'm just the messenger. I'm not the uh, all-knowing. I don't know much, as a matter of fact. You know it all, and it's thy spirit that gives us wisdom and understanding. So, Father, not only be the power in my voice that gives wisdom and understanding to the ear that hears, but also to the heart to understand and to respond to you, to you personally, because it's a letter, it's a word from you. So we ask this in Jesus Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. Now, the first sermon that I preached in this series, I just want to do kind of a review here because I think that it is important as we get this down about a revived walk. A revived walk. Now, don't forget, I didn't preach the first sermon until after the revival that we ate meeting that we had with Tom Farrell. But again, as I said earlier, it can be in a church, whether it's a revival meeting or not, or it can be at home in your personal devotional time and meditation in the things of God. Because it should be communion with God. View the preacher. View the pastor. View the man of God. View the one standing in the pulpit who will preach the word as it is to men as they are as still the messenger of God, and realize it is God's message. Now, when we started this, we started in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 4 through 6. So let me just go over there. As a matter of fact, tonight I'll give you a few passages. You can write them down or you can turn real fast to them. But Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6 says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, now a vow is a promise whether it is uh, to stop something or start doing something, it is a promise. So when thou vowest a vow, he says, and who are you vowing this vow to? Unto God. Defer not to pay it. 
for he hath no pleasure in fools. Now, you make a promise to God and you don't keep it. Notice what God calls you. I mean, it's not me calling anybody that. I, I can't rightly call anybody that. It's God who calls it. He says, you're a fool to make a promise to God and not keep it. When God calls a person a fool, he's a fool. Whether we believe it, accept it or not. He goes on to say, pay that which thou hast vowed. Better it is thou shouldest not vow than thou shouldest vow and not pay. Now let me just say a couple things about that. There are those that preach, the Bible teaches right here not to make any vows to God. We don't live in a day of vows. Boy, Satan would like for you to believe that. Well, that would mean then marriage vows mean nothing, wouldn't it? Uh, vows are for day. Vow is a promise. It's a solemn promise of a person giving their word to carry out something. For example, marriage, love, honor, cherish, till death do us part. And so you keep that vow. That is a promise you make to that special person. But promises we make to God, why go back onto them? And so, since he has no pleasure in fools, so it's better not to bow. It doesn't say you shouldn't bow. What he's saying here is simply this. He's laying something on your heart through the study of his word, through the preaching of the word, or in some other fashion. He's laid something on your heart, and therefore, you're responding to him, whether it's to stop something, start something, do something, whatever it is, you're responding to him. And so you make the promise because you know that's what he wants. That's called a vow. You promise God, I will do it. That's a vow. Now, he said it's better not to vow. He doesn't say it's not good to vow. He's saying not to vow. In other words, it is good to vow. If God puts something on your heart, it's good to promise God that. But, you're not going to keep it, you'd be better off not bowing. So it's better thou hast, uh, thou shouldest not bow than that thou shouldest bow and not pay. Now let me share a scripture that kind of shows this. God landed something on someone's heart and they responded. And it's Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, From uh, uh, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Now, <laughs> somebody's sending to tell the people if they don't repent, they're going to be in a lot of danger, they're going to go into captivity, all these things. A lot of other things to happen. So, who will go for us, God says. Isaiah, then said I, 
here am I, Lord. Send me. Isaiah volunteered to go. And he would. By rabbinical writings, it is believed that when Hebrews chapter 11 refers to uh, some were sawn asunder, in other words, they were sawn in half while they were still alive. Rabbinical writings report that Isaiah was killed that way. But he carried out the word of God. He kept his vow. You say, boy, that's really hard. How'd you like to have his reward? See, that, there comes a question in our minds when we talk about, you know, what if, what if people hate us? What if we get rejected? What if it costs us something on our jobs? What if it costs us something in our neighborhood? What, what if it costs us something? It'll never cost, not even close, to be as, as much as the greatness of the reward in heaven. The sufferings, Romans chapter 8 tells us, of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. In other words, the sufferings this time, they can be bad. But they'll seem minute in comparison to the greatness of the glory to those that will keep their promise and do what God wants them to do, knowing I am doing the will of God for my life. So, this is what God calls when you don't do it, going back on a promise. Whether you made that promise at home or whether you made that promise at an altar in the church, you made it to him. Hannah, Samuel's mother, I'm sure she prayed many times at home for a son. But she went there, she entered into the house of the Lord there, where Eli was, and she was praying. Her lips moved, but nobody could hear the words because she was saying her, the words to God, but to, not with the voice, but with words from her mouth. And she promised that if God would give her a son, she would give him to the Lord. Eli thought she was drunk because her lips were moving and, and nothing was coming out. And she had to say, no, I'm not drunk. I've got a burden in my heart. And somehow Eli was smart enough to hear the Lord say, let her know that he's going to grant it. And she went out in faith, believing that. And when Samuel was born, he became of age that he was weaned that she gave him back there to Eli and the prophet Samuel, two books of the Bible named there, a mother kept her word. That should say something to us. He goes on to say there, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore, should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Some people may say, well, I got caught up in the emotion of the moment. Oh, I tell you what, uh, that preacher, the way he preached and so forth, it was so hard and, and so compelling it had me scared half to death. And I made that 
decision. I said, I would do this, but I didn't really mean it. He kind of conned me into making this decision. Now, you're not only a fool, now you've made God angry. Don't say it was a mistake. Oh, I just got caught up in the emotion of the moment. God says that's what a fool does, and it makes him angry. Now, be careful. We also considered Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 back then, where the Lord says, You shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. And those, uh, these were the Lord's words that He spake unto them through Moses the prophet. And so we take up there in verse 7, And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their face all these words which the Lord commanded him. Isn't it interesting as you read in the book of Exodus about the building of the tabernacle? They do things, and so often you see the repeated praise, as the Lord commanded Moses. As the Lord commanded Moses. Made sure they stuck to God's plan. And what was that plan? He says that uh, the command he would give them was to evangelize the world. He would make them a nation of priests. Now, we've told you many times before, a priest is someone who talks to God for people and talks to people for God. That's our call. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. And so, we have that calling. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, we also see, Similar, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Again, God says, Go, spread the gospel. Now, Israel in its day, even before it's in the land, is told they're going to be a nation of priests that the world may know God. They are going to spread the gospel of God. Now, you know, there was good news. In the, there was a gospel in the Old Testament. That was of a coming Savior. That all those sacrifices would point towards. And by faith in believing that there was a coming Savior to, who would die for their sins and raise from the dead, they acted upon it. That's why we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, we have the same call as Israel had. Ye also, as lively stones, are built a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 9 goes on to say, But ye are 
a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Again, you have a priesthood. Now in Israel, the priesthood came out of the line of Aaron. But in the new birth, we're born again through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the chief priest. He's the high priest. As his children, we are priests of God. When you got saved, you became a priest. And that responsibility was to go before God to find his will. And as that Old Testament priest would go and offer sacrifices, sacrifices sometimes of praise, sometimes sacrifices of other things, that well, as we go, we're giving a sweet savor offering when we tithe and we offer. That's why when you hear me on Sunday morning pray, most often for the offering, I will pray about it being a time of worship, because that's what we should be doing. We're giving this tithe and offering as worship and obedience to our God and love for Him and faith, trusting Him. That's what a priest does. And so a priest will act in faith, and in faith he will speak to people for God, and he's already given us the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so you have a holy duty to which one day you, I, will be called into an account before God. I believe that account would be, did you talk to God for people? Did you talk to people for God. Did you try to edify saints? Encourage believers? And by the way, we're Baptists here because we're Biblicists. A church doesn't declare who saints are. The Bible does. And the Lord says, those that receive Christ and save, you're a saint. Now, we should act like saints. A saint is obedient and it's all for Jesus. Separated unto God. But we're just taught for Jesus in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18. When I say unto the wicked, Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. I've actually had people come to me, get upset that I preached that. I don't know why. It's what God said. I didn't write it, honest. I didn't. God gave holy men of old those words. It was written. He said, what does that mean, blood on my hands? That person had a chance to hear the gospel be saved through you, and you didn't do it. 
And that day that he is cast into the eternal lake of fire, the life was in the blood, but we did nothing about it. And that blood drips from our hand. But that blood is required at our hand. Why did you not give them the gospel? I wonder about preachers all across this land today that preach a happy, happy, happy gospel. They preach a lot of psychology and philosophy but never tell people they're sinners headed to hell if they don't repent and receive the Savior. If those preachers are truly saved, oh, the blood, oh, the blood on the hand. Romans 12, 1 and 2, though, gives us further instruction. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, it's by God's mercy we get to do this, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Do you realize that that is a personal responsibility we have before God? That our lives be holy, that is, that our lives be separated from the world and separated unto God. Amen. Remember the Apostle Paul? <laughs> that guy got saved. He was worse. I mean, he was bad. But he was separated unto the gospel of Christ. Separated from this world. And those are areas of which we shall one day give account. Now, I have looked at what we've said, so I just want to say briefly before we actually get into this chapter. There are three truths about a blessed man of God that we find here in verse 1. He walketh not, walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, standeth, sitteth, walketh. All three of those words have a different idea, a little bit different idea in each of them, but they have one thing in common. And that is the TH at the end of the words. It indicates a continual thing that is an identification of the person. Walking in the council, standing in the way, sitting in the seat, is something that identifies them. It could identify them in all three areas. And the world can see it. The world can recognize it. This is not negative when we think about it. It's not negative at all. 
spiritually to say blessed is that person, blessed is that one that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sitteth in the, uh, standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the, uh, the scornful. That is not, that simply is not negative. That's positive for a Christian. It's only negative to a Christian if he wants to scorn. You, you ever see people get up and they'll make fun of a preacher, they'll make fun of a singer, they'll make fun of the church, they'll make fun of a Christian ministry and they'll put it down. <laughs> that's, that's not, look at those standards. <laughs> Bunch of legalists. Those are scorners. Okay, and because they seem to continue in those ways, they're sitting in that seat. And they feel brilliant, but God kind of looks at it like a fool. See, it's only negative to do those things it's only negative to you if you're carnal in your daily walk, even though you name the name of Christ. You want to be like the world. Walketh here has the idea as a matter of life in how you conduct yourself. Now, let, let's just look at some things for an example. A carpenter. And this carpenter, he checks and he rechecks the blueprints as he's working on a building to be sure everything is right. He checks, he rechecks. And he gets the name of a carpenter you can trust. He does it just right. He does it according to the plan. Boy, this is a good carpenter. And people recommend that carpenter. Why? He's walking in the way that he should walk. Now, I used to sell mobile homes years ago. I mean, back in the early 70s. And part of our advertisement was two by four walls. One day I went to the mobile home factory and saw a two by two there. 16 inches, two by two on the other side. Well, it was four inches across, but those aren't what you call two by four walls. Okay, that, that, was, that was really wrong. Now, they've, things have changed over the years about that. And I'm not selling mobile homes, by the way, anymore. But, but what I'm saying is, is that, uh, boy, that was sure deceptive. And people, as they find out, they're not happy. Don't go there. Don't buy from that company. They don't do it right. Two by four walls, but they're not really two by four walls. I've seen it in a chain store in management. It might be a department store. It might be some other kind of conglomerate uh, along the way, but the home office. They're coming by. They warned them. They're coming by. They're going to inspect everything. Now, I've been, whether it's in a department store or a grocery store, working those. I've been there when all of a sudden you're cleaning up and 
finding places for things and putting things in a specific way, a specific place. So that when they arrive and they have that big day of inspection, everything has to be just right. The books have to be just right. The uh, counters have to be just right. Everything has to be just right. Even though you may have done things not completely right at the time. And you see, when they come in, they're doing an inspection. And they try to get ready to make it look like, oh, they've been doing it all along. But I found that when I've worked for those places, many times when they didn't do things right and continue to do things right, it showed itself up. Things were found and negative reports would come out. Every once in a while, somebody would lose their job. Even though that when they arrived, everything looked good, but the home office knew the difference. You can deceive people, but you can't deceive the home office, you might say. Uh, but let me give you something that's just a little bit more closer to home today. You remember when Rick Warren came on the scene? Uh, our former Spanish pastor who's with the Lord, Brother Tony, he said he was right there when he introduced the program there to Southern Baptist Church. And he told him it's either 40% uh, Bible and 60% entertainment, or you can have 40% entertainment, 60% uh, Bible, but uh, you got to do it. And he, he stood up and said, wait a minute, we're here to preach the Word. And he, they put his name on the document, and he did not sign it. He left them. They offered him good money to stay, and he did not do it. Now, praise the Lord for a man with that kind of character. But when he came on the way, and the contemporary really got moving and started, preachers, all of a sudden, now I'm not saying anything against this, but all of a sudden preachers come up to the pulpit and they had a goatee. I'm not old enough to grow one yet. Uh, they'd have a goatee. They'd come in casual dress. <laughs> Some came in shorts or blue jeans. And at first, it was funny to watch, they were wearing Hawaiian shirts. And then after a while, they started wearing open-collar shirts, no tie, no suit. In other words... The counsel that they had, the advice, that's the counsel, the advice was to win the world, you must look like the world and act like the world and be unreverent towards the house of God and the things of God like the world if you're going to win them. And if you regard the holiness of God or his person at all, if you regard the holiness and the person of God at all, then that very thought is totally repulsive to you. 
In the late 1960s, there was a movement of Christian psychologists. I remember Clyde Naramore. His books were out there, and, and uh, all the counsel on the home, the marriage. And people said, well, Clyde Naramore's old hat, we need something new, and James Dobson come along. At one time, somebody suggested some James Dobson things that were really good, they were really scriptural. I showed them right here on a Wednesday night. And, and in one of those clips, he said, you've got a teenager that's playing that loud rock music in his bedroom. Don't go in there and yell at him and tell him what's wrong. Just tell him to turn it down. You've got that daughter that wants to stay out past midnight. We're living in a different age now. He says, show her you trust her and let her stay out, but give her some rules. When that was over, I come up here and I said, folks, one thing you've got to understand about James Dobson, his background is Nazarene. He doesn't even believe in eternal security. He doesn't believe the way we believe, and what he said was wrong. I had people ready to hang me. Now, I apologize. I said I should have reviewed the film, or that wouldn't have gone up. <clears throat> no more of them have gone up since. <laughs> okay. Not here. Now, people are probably even saying, well, I read a James Dobson book. Boy, it helped me so much. Well, I'm glad it helped you. But sometimes they'll take scriptures and conform them to a philosophy that they learned in psychology class from a secular class. When the great counselor already had the word there for us to follow. If you just do it, it's right. If you'll just do God's will, God's way, it will always, always be right. And so, that's just one of those things where psychology was the big thing, and then it became contemporary. There was the speaking in tongues movement. All of it was to build, and it all took away from the holiness of God. Is America better today? Then in the 1960s, is it more pure? Is it more holy? Does it have more respect for God? If you just listen to Brother Osborne tonight, you know it doesn't. Well, that movement in the churches is one of the reasons that Brother Osborne is standing in the Congress trying to fight for us. And that's one of the reasons America is like it is. We can say politicians failed, but my friend, the church has failed. Christians have failed. We've got to stand. We made those decisions that we're going to live holy and separate unto God. Let's do it. Now look, I have, in the years as a pastor, had couples renew their vows. I've had someone that heard it. I met the first time I said it. I don't have to say it again. Well, then why aren't you doing it? But they'd come in, it's a nice thing to do, the renewal of the vows. I wonder if it's not, it's not that God has taken his call from you. It's not that God doesn't have something he wants added to your life or wants taken away from your life. It may be what you promised God you're not doing now. Some, something of this world has drawn you away. 
But of course, James chapter 1 tells us we're moved of our own lust and enticed, and then it brings forth sin. But really, when you think about it, it may be a time to instead of turning completely on God, come back and renew your vows to Him. God, you spoke to my heart that day. I want to come and tell you how sorry I am. And I'm, by God's grace and His forgiveness, I'm renewing my vow to walk with God. In your individual Christian life, as it affects your job, as it affects your home, as it affects your marriage, as it affects any part of your life, The revived walk moving forward must realize it's all for Jesus. It's all by the Word of God. How are we standing?